1: Hi team, Oliver here. This week I interview Julia Thane demondant Principal of Urban Transformation at the Rocky Mountain Institute. I am a massive fan of RMI. They've been advocating for market-based climate solutions for years and have some of the most in-depth research on the pathways required to help us meet our climate goals, especially in urban transformation. As I mentioned in this episode, I often say that if you spend enough time in micromobility, you fall backwards into urbanism. Talking about bike lanes, street space, reallocation, zoning, land use implications, and the like. Well, Julia started there and fell backwards into micromobility. She came on board as one of our hosts for the Micromobility Europe conference, and I had an absolute blast meeting her and talking about her work. I'm absolutely stoked that she will be joining us again for Micromobility America coming up next month. In this conversation, we talk about the opportunities and pitfalls of micromobility in all its forms and how they intersect with cities. We had a blast, and I hope you do too, listening to this. As you probably know by now, as I mentioned, Micromobility America is coming on the 15th and 16th of September to the Bay Area. We've got some amazing speakers this year, including Mike Radenbar, CEO of Rad Power Bikes, the largest e-bike player in North America. Wayne Ting, CEO of Lime, the godfather of mountain biking, Gary Fisher, and Eric Adams, the mayor of New York, will be joining us virtually as well. We're expecting up to a 1,000 of the top micromobility nerds, thinkers, entrepreneurs, and investors. I will be up there and would love to see you. Get your tickets at micromobility.io. And with that, here is Julia. Let's go. All right, and welcome back to Micromobility. We have with us today, Julia Thane demordant from RMI. How are you doing today, Julia?
0: I'm doing great. Everyone always struggles with that last, last name. (laughs) Trying to figure out, is it French? Is it American? What should I do with this?
1: (laughs) Yeah, yeah, it's beautiful. It's it's very lyrical. It kind of rolls off the tongue. Yeah, yeah.
0: Thank you, thank you. It means of the dead, so, you know...
1: Oh, right. Yeah. Of course. Yeah. yeah, there we go. Nice. Well, hey, look, I'm, I'm super excited to have this conversation today. You are one of these people that in this world of micromobility, I, every so often I discover people who are either, you know, sort of coming to this tangentially, but are super, you know, you're, you're on board with the mission and you can really see where it fits. And, I, and I'm really excited to have that conversation with you today. So I thought maybe what we can start with is just if you want to take us through what you do at the Rocky Mountain Institute, For those who maybe don't know, maybe start with what the Rocky Mountain Institute is, and then you can talk about what your role is with urban transformation there.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And Oliver, I might even take a step back and talk about the series of tangents that got me to this role at Rocky Mountain Institute and what we're doing right now. Yeah, for sure. Just because I think it's relevant, in fact, for a lot of people who are coming to the micromobility industry that haven't necessarily been entrenched in it since the beginning, like yourselves. So my career has really spanned that nexus of technology and climate and cities and policy and design, and those are you know the areas in which I have kind of seen multiple perspectives on the same problem. I joined RMI or Rocky Mountain Institute about a year ago, and before that was at the mayor's office in Los Angeles. I was hired into that role to focus on transportation technology. In a place that people think is not innovative on transportation, that is stuck in traffic, that is so focused on cars, he wanted somebody who thought a little bit bigger and bolder, and who recognized that Angelinos actually are transport innovators and could be into the future. So that was my role there. Uh, and in the past, you know, I've worked uh, in private sector, in academic sector, you know, worked in nonprofit spaces, always trying to push the envelope in terms of what people think transportation should be and how people leverage technology as just a way to get to an end goal rather than as the end goal itself. So my role has very much been to be that instigator to focus on community first solutions and how you co-create things with and for communities uh, and to have a much more user-centered design approach. So all of that experience is what I bring to Rocky Mountain Institute, Uh, RMI.
1: Yeah, awesome. Yeah,
0: global nonprofit, uh, very rapidly growing We are focused all on climate action. We do two things in five places. So we work on decarbonizing the world's most heavily polluting industries using what we call market transformation. So it's finance, it's investments, it's policy changes, it's public-private partnerships. And then we work in US, India, China, parts of the global south, and then my realm is cities. And my specific focus is something called climate aligned urbanism. So how do you accelerate equitable climate action in cities through land use, housing and transportation, which are really three, you know, pillars of a stool in order to reduce transportation emissions in cities.
1: So I have this long running trope that if you spend enough time in micromobility, you fall backwards into urbanism. (laughs) And it appears that you have spent enough time in urbanism to fall backwards into micromobility. I have. So take me through that journey for you about why micromobility is interesting when you're talking about reducing emissions in cities and and trying to achieve all those things that you're talking about.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And I think this question is foundational to my work at RMI. So at RMI, we have started to pioneer something we're calling the both and approach towards urban transport and electrification. We do a lot of research, just trying to crunch the numbers around what will it actually take in order to reduce transport emissions worldwide? Just to give a sense of magnitude, in the US, transportation is the largest uh, sector of emissions. It's the fourth largest globally. It's the fastest growing in India and China. NASA, I think it was like a day or two ago, declared automobiles as the largest net contributor of climate change pollution in the world. So we're talking about something that is urgent, that's growing, and that we you know, kind of desperately need to work on. When I say both and, what I mean is mathematically, we can't get to our transport emissions reduction targets in the US or elsewhere without doing two things. One is electrifying anything and everything that we have on the ground right now and making sure that anything that's on the ground in the future, or in the air for that matter, or on the sea, is electric. And second is to make sure that we reduce the amount that people drive. The way that we're tackling that currently is on the transport electrification front, we're very much focused on what's the supportive infrastructure that's needed. How do we roll out charging infrastructure effectively? How do we prepare the grid for the increased demands on it? And we're looking at medium and heavy duty truck electrification. We're looking at ride hail electrification, especially at places like airports. We're looking at business models for affordable access to microtransit and bike bike share. And then on the the vehicle miles traveled reduction front, we want to make sure that we're not trying to Hamper people's accessibility or mobility or freedom of movement. It's all about creating opportunity for that. So, I specifically work on three things. One is how do we invest in housing as equitable climate action? And how do we align where our housing is with where people need to go? How do we shift money away from car based infrastructure and towards supportive infrastructure investments? And the third pillar is how do you provide more and better mobility options? And really, that's where micro mobility fits in. So, you know, lots of thinking there, lots of research and projects we're doing that I'm happy to dig into. But I think this idea of providing more and better mobility options is so crucial to making sure that we can get to the uh, reduction in transportation emissions we need without affecting the economy or people's livelihoods or equity yep. in a way that, you know, doesn't help us
1: achieve our goals. Totally. I mean, I think that the the one thing that I found super fascinating when I got into micro was your point in the beginning around like hey we just need to work out how to have people drive less is like yeah that's really wonderful when you <laughs> you know you live in downtown new york or downtown an area where you have all those things easy to you but i you know there's a hard argument to to give to people who you know they require to drive 40 minutes each way to the job that they have or you know, and it's, there aren't other options available to them. And so, yeah, and like public transport is just not an option, you know, it's just not, uh, you know, it's not going to be uh, satisfying. And so in that regard, I think there's a very compelling case that'd be made for, for micro I do want to go into one of your points around the math, because that's something that Horace oftentimes talks about. It's like the math for EVs don't doesn't stack up. We cannot shift to EVs yeah. for the, we've got 2 billion cars or 1.5 billion cars. We're going to be going to 3 billion cars over the next probably 25 to 30 years. And we just can't do all of those as EVs. So from a resource perspective, we can't. And also just from a, you know, from a scaling perspective, it, it's just going to take a lot of time. Where do you see micromobility kind of offering assistance in that space?
0: And where even to start? I mean, I think one of the biggest challenges in the US and in many places is that we have a car monoculture. Your only option is a car. And so the default is, is that if you can afford it. And I think what's happening with cars is, you know, cars aren't actually serving us in the way that we need them to. In all circumstances, there's space constraints, there's safety issues, there's traffic, there's the social striation. And where I see micromobility really fitting in is as one of the options that people can use to get around. And in many ways, as the better option for people to use to get around in certain circumstances. One of the pieces of research we're doing right now is we're starting to quantify the energy and emissions and sort of infrastructure maintenance savings uh, and affordability benefits of e bikes. In, at the individual level, but then also at a, a citywide level. And one way we've tweaked the model actually is not to just to look at if somebody could only have an e-bike, you know, what that would mean. But if somebody had an e-bike and an EV, how much better is that than having an e-bike and an internal combustion engine vehicle, or for that matter, just having an EV? And so what we're seeing, I think, is that in my mind, at least, in order to improve people's accessibility, they just need more options. We know that when we're looking at the data, if people have ownership of a car, they use a car. Their vehicle miles increase when they have uh, access to a car. Same thing is true with bikes. So I think if we give people, again, sort of access to more options, they'll choose the option that works for the trip they're trying to take. And, you know, again, I think that's where both privately owned and shared micromobility come in.
1: Yeah. All the things that we've talked about today in this instance have been e-bikes. I'm kind of curious, you know, like Horace defines micromobility as being anything from like a one wheel through to a, an Eli or a Nimbus, a sort of like 500 kg, thousand pound vehicle. And yet we still haven't seen that many, you know, like they're not that common in the market. You know, you probably the biggest one out there is the Polaris NEB, which is like the little golf cart thing that you can buy. Do you consider that to be a material option when when you're running these models and looking at this study? Like, do you consider these sort of like slightly larger vehicles that might be better serving for a whole bunch of stuff? do they factor in or are they kind of yeah. irrelevant in the general scheme of things? Yeah. Compared yeah. to like NED versus in a bike, that sort of thing. Right.
0: This is where I feel like I could go really dorky and nerdy with <laughs> and get into like the, the details.
1: You're among friends. Come come on now. <laughs> yeah. yeah.
0: <laughs> oh, there are other dorks and nerds who listen to this. That's so weird. Um, or who care about micro mobility and maybe that's just the entire industry. In any case. So now let me go on my dorky tangent, which is, you know, you probably have a lot of experience with this, actually, Oliver, which is just vehicle certification and making sure that vehicles are up to certain safety standards in different countries. In the US, I think we have kind of prohibitive vehicle safety standards that limits what we can see on the roads or on sidewalks in a way that's just unnecessary, but also sort of speaks to the way that we've privileged light duty vehicles and trucks. I don't know that you see those same sort of prohibitory regulations in other countries, uh, or certainly the enforcement of them. So when I look for innovation in micromobility, I never look at the US. I look at what's happening in India with the two and three wheeler explosion and just the incredible innovation you see in vehicle type there. I look at the Philippines uh, and the innovation that you see in both you know, personally owned and shared transport. And that's where I think we get the kind of biggest variation in terms of vehicle design and, and what we need to be doing. But I think at that national level is where the policy change needs to happen in order to, you know, make sure that it's easy for folks to understand what vehicles can go on the road and that there's a broader definition of what vehicles are allowed on a road or on a sidewalk.
1: Yeah. I mean, the biggest pushback that I've seen for for groups like we've had Nimbus on the podcast, I've had Eli on the podcast recently and been reading the comments that comes through about them. And the big thing that everybody kind of pushes back against, Akimoto is another one as well, who's a sort of example of a, of a heavy micromobility, as we would call it, is that, you know, people will say, oh, look, these things just aren't safe. And it's like, well, it's all relative, right? Because we allow motorbikes and these things are actually quite a bit safer than motorbikes, but it's, it it really comes down to, as you say, the privilege that's been afforded the light vehicles.
0: Yeah. And arguably it's not the vehicles that aren't safe. It's the roads that aren't safe. So like really we're looking at the problem from the wrong angle. Yeah.
1: Yeah. And yet I think that the, the, the one area in this that I think has been probably the most interesting and is so understudied and I'm, I'm begging anybody who's studied this space, please reach out to me because I'd love to talk to them. Is the Chinese light electric or low-speed electric vehicle space? Yeah, and that's so. So if you look at China relative to like they outsell nearly everybody for for EVs globally, but actually there's this whole category of vehicles that are not included in those figures, which are all these two. They're they're like three wheelers and small four wheelers that look like golf carts, but are enclosed, that are sold. They only go up to 50 kilometers an hour. You don't require a driver's license to drive them. And there is a massive number of them in China. Yeah. And if you go and spend time on the streets, and I I, I don't know if you've spent time on the streets in, in, in China, but it was like, that was the thing that really blew me away when I, when I went and visited there in 2018, was just the number of these vehicles that were on the road. And there's only been one study that I've seen, and that was from a lady called Lavender Owl for the rest of world uh, like publication, but nobody else really I've seen, like I've never seen sales figures. We don't know like how big that number is or anything like this, but they're so interesting.
0: And honestly, that's a very important point from a research perspective in particular. One of the things we've struggled to do even with just focusing on e-bikes is to get data. And to figure out, you know, what is the penetration into the market? How are e-bikes being used? There have been surveys that have been collected, but especially when you have direct-to-consumer models, it's hard to know. When I was at City of LA, we did two things. Um, one, and maybe also all of you remember this, one of the things that we did is we launched the mobility data specification, which was an API. to Oh,
1: I do remember this.
0: Oh, you do? Oh, I'm sure some of the yes. listeners on here have <laughs> yeah. remembered it as well. Um, they <laughs> caused quite a ruckus. Um, but the point of it was yeah. to have some transparency in data so that cities could utilize that information for their use cases, which is thinking about and showing to you know politicians especially here are the streets that we have where we have more scooter riders than we have car drivers which in LA is incredibly important and i think we need to figure out how to do that in a way that's transparent and accessible across modalities and specific within even micro mobility subcategories because you know honestly like the way that we collect transportation data right now it's it's archaic we have huge buckets i mean it's just like kind of embarrassing it's so hard. oh it
1: is yeah hard. yeah <laughs> this is just
0: let just let just
1: oh, i, I just sorry yeah. i got off the call i was on a yeah i was on a call yesterday i've been doing some consulting work with the Ministry of transport in new zealand and we had i did this study two years ago and we finally represented it to, to the government yesterday so it was it's very fresh of mind but it was one of the things that we were talking about is just how like how terrible the data is on micromobility like we have Broadly a nice understanding of like how many e-bikes are in the country. But you don't know how they're used. They don't know how they're used relative and differently to standard bikes or anything like that. We don't have any understanding really of the breakdown between scooters and e-bikes because they're in the same import category. It's just, uh, and that's like for a country that's actually quite good at collecting its data. Yeah. And I, I have always maintained, and again, this is another one of these, like if anybody wants a PhD or a master's uh, uh, thesis and wants to go do the research, finding out a way to build an AI you know, overlay that you can just take a video feed and be able to separate out shared scooters, personally owned scooters, e-bikes, standard bikes from a video feed, I think is just going to be incredibly valuable information to be able to provide to a, to a government because yeah. every government in the world that I'm talking to wants to know where that is and don't doesn't have a way of being able to do that easily.
0: Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, it's a fair point. We're using some of the most sophisticated platforms too that either create synthetic populations to mimic travel patterns or you know, bring together different data sources in order to uh, look at travel patterns from a certain level. But it's the same thing. I mean, from a micro mobility perspective, they like barely break out scooters from e-bikes, and what we're talking about is even above and beyond that. Like I, I can't imagine, and maybe there is this out there, but a data set that looks at these light electric vehicles, like there are in China, or the two and three wheelers uh, like uh, in India, or any of the you know very interesting mobility options that you see in places like Mexico city that again, kind of span this shared versus privately operated, but shared versus uh, privately owned and operated.
1: Yeah. So, I, I mean, you've been in the mix, with this stuff uh so for those who don't know julia was uh one of the mcs uh alongside me at micromobility europe and will be MCing also at micromobility america which we're very excited about september 15th 16th get your tickets <laughs> but one of the things that like i think you've now had a decent amount of exposure to is what is you know the tech that is coming or the things that are the things that are possible and i'm very curious for you you know You're, you're obviously thinking about this. You're thinking about how do we build denser cities? How do we, from a, from a climate perspective? So, and one of the big things that like we could talk about in that space is just the challenges you have when you try and build more dense cities is that until now we've only been able to do that in places where we can build subways and oftentimes building subways is a very expensive undertaking or building, you know, big public transport projects is a big undertaking. And yet we've got a number of governments around the world building or legislating for more density. And I know California just yesterday, was it, passed that new thing, which effectively allowed huge amounts of density. We've got the same thing in New Zealand. What are the vehicles or the tech that you've seen uh, at the conferences coming down the pipe that you think will help governments be able to achieve that density? Is it? Is it, or is it, if, if there's anything in there that you can see, I mean, and maybe, maybe I'll give a little bit more context to that question, which is like. One of the big problems that we have in New Zealand, we've just provided a legislation. We've got rid of all minimum car parking requirements. We've done a whole bunch of new density legislation and it's broad across the entire country. And everybody's freaking out because you can't manage on street car parks anymore. And my answer is like, well, of course, you'll just get everybody to get micro mobility vehicles because they're just from a footprint perspective, way smaller. So it'll allow these things to function on this on the street. But I'm, yeah, I'm curious, you know, do you see anything that, uh, or, or, like what's got you excited in, the, in that space uh, relative to that?
0: Yeah, I mean, <laughs> many things have me excited. One of the key focus areas for uh, my research in RMI is just any new construction, whether it's happening in the U.S. or happening abroad. Some of the places that are fastly urbanizing or most quickly urbanizing, like Nigeria, for example, in Africa. The reason we're so hyper-focused on new construction is that so much of the new construction of housing in particular is happening in greenfield areas way outside of cities. I mean, they have no, like a snowball's chance in hell of like actually having lower transportation emissions if they're going to be located so far out of the city to begin with.
1: And are those car dense developments? Just out of curiosity
0: by default i mean they kind of have to be they are car dense developments right because any inter even if the housing itself is quite closely linked to each other they're often not tied directly or within close walking biking distance of any of the resources you really need whether it's a hospital or a school or um, a grocery store or or whatever And I say that again, it doesn't matter if it's a US context or not, similar things are happening, certainly in some of the metro regions in India. So uh, we really think of the new construction in two ways. One is about how do you unlock the policy and sort of investment needs for building housing in places that already have low vehicle miles traveled. So how do you make it easier to build another rentable unit in somebody's backyard? How do you make it easier to convert a single family home property into four units or eight units? And what are the policy mechanisms to do that? The second way we think about it is how do you retrofit suburbs? So how do you start to bring some of those more commercial healthcare, academic resources closer to where people already live? And is there some policy flexibility for that? And is there also there's some uh, investment bonuses or investment incentives uh, to be able to build complete communities, even if you're building them outside of cities. And that idea of complete communities or uh, making something walkable by design is an approach that we've already pioneered with developers uh, in India and uh, in actually showed material reductions in vehicle miles traveled, like to the uh, order of 40% VMT reduction compared to what it would have been otherwise and and hoping to scale that work.
1: And is it basically, for example, like putting a shop in a, in a real estate development where we...
0: Exactly. Yeah,
1: right. So the people are like, oh, I don't need yeah. to go out to the shop just simply to buy the most basic goods.
0: Yeah, yeah. And I mean, I think so those are sort of the policy options, the investment options, and working directly with developers and financial institutions. But when it comes also just to like, how do you promote density? How do you promote street safety? How do you promote street design connectivity? I mean, I'm like, all aboard the train of like, let's put a micro mobility option in the hands of every person. We're not doing that right now. We're, we're definitely pursuing the strategy of like, let's create the luxury options. And then once the supply chain and the economics works out, like it'll all kind of make sense and there'll be lower cost options that people can use. And I'm all about the, let's subsidize private ownership heavily so that we can widen the base of folks who can afford micromobility and then create this sort of knock-on effect of more advocates and like a political movement towards wanting safer street design, uh, wanting more bike lane infrastructure, wanting more bus lanes, wanting, you know, some more density because I don't think as a micro mobility industry, you know, I, I guess I'm, I'm part of it now that we're necessarily doing that in the same way that is needed in order to create more of this political push. And again, I would say that's true, especially in the U S but it's true elsewhere too.
1: Yeah. So that all makes sense. In, uh when you're talking about like, okay, you can build neighborhoods that have got shops in them and all that sort of stuff. But if you're building out in these areas on the you know the edge of Lagos in Nigeria, and and as it is a car you know centric development, you're not going to necessarily get these folks out into onto e-bikes, right? Like I just don't think that that's going to be the case. One of the things that I've been kind of excited, and I'll, I'll, I'll own here you know, I'm also an advisor and an investor in the project. So obviously I'm going to be slightly biased, but like part of the reason I've been excited about Nimbus, but not only about Nimbus, it's like Arkemoto and Trigo and Eli as well, is that there are small electric vehicles that are going to emerge that are enclosed that have like climate control. They're effectively cars, but they are, well, they do the job of a car, but they're small enough that they're, they're actually footprint wise, way lower in emissions and, and better. Do you think I'm kind of Accurate in thinking that those might be an, a, a more viable option in terms of being able to help change behavior patterns, or um, are we still? Do you still think that that's going to be a challenge to be able to get folks into those vehicles? Yeah, I
0: mean it's a good question, and it depends a little bit. I'll say what we've had success with here in LA and in other places that I've, I've worked is with some of these like electric. Circulators, whether they're autonomous or not, and they're more the size of a, a golf cart or a little bit larger, and very much focused on neighborhood movement. And I think things like that are going to be really important in the context that you described. We're, in fact, uh, Urban Movement Labs, which is a nonprofit that I sit on the board of uh, here in L.A. It acts as kind of this third space between companies, communities, and the largest transportation departments in the City of L.A. They're doing a project specifically focused on this, like how can you do community connectivity through zero emissions circulator options. So I, I definitely think there's space for that. It, maybe micromobility isn't the answer, but where I do see a gap for sure is between those like greenfield developments and everything else. Yeah, you know, like can you get you know train lines connected enough? Can you give people an option on a bus rack to put their micromobility vehicle? so that they can get to the train station, like, I think you have to think about the mode switching a bit and plan for people to be able to do that mode switching more effectively. And I would say, you know, one thing that we haven't really talked about is just like parking and security yeah. for micro mobility options, which I know doesn't come up that much, but it's definitely an important part of driving for uh, higher
1: adoption. Yeah. Totally. Um, I want to come back to a, a, a comment that you just made before about municipalities being able to drive, you know, assist in the uh, like adoption and, and, and being able to like get more people into like public subsidies for private use. And we- You know, I want to go back. You can kind of look at the context of like the Inflation Reduction Act just extended $7,500 EV credit, but it doesn't apply to two or three wheelers. Mm -hmm. There's a heap of money that's going into EVs and I'm like, you know, shaking my hands at the cloud sort of uh, situation because it's like, if you're really serious about reducing emissions, the big thing you want to be subsidizing a micromobility, mobility, but we're not going there. You know what are the efforts that you've seen around the world for helping so municipalities saying like, yes, we want this, we want to see it happen, we want to as- effectively assist with the development of this space, and also you know what does that cost them? you know are there any examples that you can kind of point to and say like they've been incredibly effective, we really like what their model is, and other other places around the world should be adopting them?
0: Yeah, it's a great question. I'm compelled to say that the Inflation Reduction Act is great. Very happy that it passed.
1: Aren't we all? Yes. Um,
0: it's going to do a lot <laughs> for climate. But I totally, yeah, I totally hear you. And my follow on comment is always like, but <laughs> micro mobility tax credit or e bike tax credit should have been in there and yep. hopefully will come in the future. What? i have been seeing though is i mean of course there are other countries where they're starting to do tax credits in several in europe i believe that are doing tax credits at the national level and that's really how we should be thinking about it but there's a lot of cities and states too including in the us that have really stepped up one of the ones that i like to point to that has been very successful is the city of denver in colorado state sort of in the middle of the country midwest of, or west of the country in the us they uh, have about $9 million that's allocated on a yearly basis for, they call it the Climate Action Voucher Program. And it's actually across a couple of different types of uh, investments like heat pumps for housing, electric bikes, electric cargo bikes, and then EV charging infrastructure. So they have a bit of flexibility in how people can do this. But every month since they've started, the e bike incentive has been sold out, like crashed to the website, you know, oversubscribed. And one of the things I really like about it, well, actually two things. One is they do have like an income qualified option. So you get more money off the e-bike if you earn less, um, which I think is a really elegant way of doing that and kind of speaks to my hope, dream, inspiration, like request for people to put a micro mobility option in the hands of every person. But the second thing they do is they go through their local bike shops. And that's a bit of a different twist on the problem than what I've seen in the micromobility space, which is, you know, the the shared side, sort of like, you can either rent a micromobility option month by month, or maybe you use your city's micromobility option. And it's also different from the direct to consumer, you order it through the internet, and it arrives in your home, you know, however many weeks or sometimes months later. So I think it's, it's interesting to kind of pull in those like local bike shops, as a way to tie micromobility to the economic development of the city. And that is crucial for micromobility being successful in the future. That's what the automotive industry did. That's what the aerospace industry did. Like they made it an economic development play. And I don't think micromobility has done that yet. And that's where I would say like strategically the industry needs to get together and move in that direction. Like here's what we need as an industry in order to be successful. And here's how we would create jobs for you.
1: Yeah. Amazing. there's one uh, one really cool story that I'd love to relay to you, which I only found out about yesterday, but I'm very excited about it. Is So there's a company down in Australia called Lug and Carry, and they do e-cargo bikes. They, they rent out turn GSDs and HSDs to, to folks, and they do it on a, on, a, on a weekly basis. If you don't like your bike or you want to change it or whatever, you can kind of give it back. They've built it specifically for families. 70% of their customers are women, and they they're really focused on families and building them in, in the kind of the core, the big, the big cities on the Australian East coast. And the program that I didn't know about, so I knew about that company and I was like, oh, this is very exciting. we was talking to the founder and he was like, yeah, we've done this whole program with councils where we say, we'll come in and you just pay for a month of this. And we give it to, we give it to folks and you know, they, they can try out an e-cargo bike it costs you a little bit, but not really that much, relatively speaking. And then the councils, you know, th- th- they love it. They don't have to handle any of the bikes. They just kind of help get the program in place. And they've seen a 50% of the folks that they got the bikes for free, 50% of them signed up to the service. Wow. It was like an incredibly powerful uh, uh, solution, I think, for being able to get. And what they're finding is that, you know, similar to what you're talking about, it you end up with. That uh, on the other side they're going through schools and other pro- you know, other community institutions to be able to get that the the kind of adoption. But that's where I think we're going to see a lot of adoption in that space. And it's really cool because like them and we, we is the one based up in Norway. Are like the two big cargo bike players that I can see, and I'm just very surprised that there aren't more of them. I would love to have more of them. If you run one of these things <laughs> again, reach out. We'd love to chat to you. <laughs> I just love these businesses. They're great businesses. You know, they're super interesting. So. Yeah. I, I, I hear you. I mean, like I'm trying to, I'm always trying to think about like what are the things that we can do? I mean, a lot of it strikes me as being like, we build the infrastructure, but the conversation with the infrastructure building is it's just super slow, you know? And you're like, you're battling for funding, even though a lot of councils, I imagine these days, um, municipalities especially are saying like, okay, climate action, we want to do stuff, got money in the kitty, but there's like a, you know, like it's a hard pushback, uh, in the political sense to being able to take away car parking spaces. Yeah. So you really need to build the advocacy on the other side. Yeah. So how do you, how do you do that? You know?
0: Yeah. Yeah. And it's a chicken and egg situation too. I mean, I actually, um, uh, we, I think we're talking about this, but there's a book out there called Speed and Scale. It's all about what are the highest priority things we need to do in order to reach our climate action goals. And in the transport sector, it's bike lane networks. Yeah, Bike lane networks are like the number one thing that we could do for transport emissions reductions. And so one of the authors of it, uh, Speed and Scale, Ryan, and I have had this debate like chicken and egg, you know, is it you put micromobility options in the hands of every person. And so you create this like political movement and force to having more bike lane networks or do you need to have the bike lane networks or safe streets, safe street design uh, in order for people to actually feel okay being on, on bikes or on micromobility options. And in my mind, like we kind of tried this whole, like let's, you know, build out uh, safe streets and, and bike lane networks. Uh, and we're doing that successfully in certain places, but we're not doing it enough and I think we got to try the other option, which is like, let's just put as many vehicles out on the road as possible and, and show that you know there is this consumer adoption, this political push, this public push for um, more supportive infrastructure and uh, kind of create that groundswell there.
1: Yeah. I'm just thinking of like, there's a whole bunch of ideas of like, how would you do that in the most capital efficient way possible? Because it's, you know, there is the challenge, right, of these subsidy schemes that I've seen, uh, you know, they can get pretty expensive in like a lot of municipalities, like you say, Denver, like $9 million. I don't know how much of that's actually being spent on e-bikes, but you know, a, a direct subsidy can oftentimes be expensive. Whereas I, I get really excited about like the lug and carry model, for example, just because it's a subscription based business yeah. that the actual upfront cost of the council was really not that high and it allows them to, and the other ones not really doing it. What they're doing is they're assisting those early stage businesses that are like just taking off to be able to really, um get into the hands of consumers. I think there's a compelling story to be told there. Yeah, that I want to the the uh the conversation about uh bike lanes I think is is one that every single person who's ever worked on cities I think has just, you know, I had uh Sky um Duncan Duncan that's right. from
0: the uh, global cities design initiative I think it's called.
1: Exactly. Yeah, Expl-
0: Yeah, from Nakdop. Yep. Yeah.
1: Yeah, Yeah, and she she was like we, we, you know, she's building, obviously talking all, similar to you all over the world, helping cities design better streets and things like this. And she's just like, the conversation about parking is just the hardest one to have. Yeah. It's, <laughs> it's like, there's just that level of entitlement from everybody that I should be able to park my car wherever I want for free without, you know, um, and, and it's it's a challenge. I don't, I don't have any good answers. I wonder if you do, have you seen anything around the world that works really well when you think about street space reallocation?
0: That's a good question. I mean, most of what I've seen people try to do with parking is just change pricing of it. So adjust the pricing. So it's almost prohibitive and then disincentivize the use of vehicles. I mean, I think what you did see during the pandemic is uh, in many developed countries, uh, the reuse of street space and parking spaces for uh, restaurants, outdoor dining, mini parklets, and that kind of took off. But Honestly, it's it's interesting. It's a tough nut to crack. I almost wonder if like painting parking spaces actually does a disservice because it assumes that a uh, vehicle is a certain size. Uh, it almost seems to me like it would make sense to just allow for a bit more of a, <laughs> and this is maybe a terrible idea, but allow for a bit more of a free-for-all uh, in terms of what people can park and where so that there's a bit more of like a, a marketplace for what's able to be parked. The the reason I'm thinking about this too is, I mean, you, I, we were just in Amsterdam, right, for the Micromobility Europe conference, and there is a limited amount of on-street parking for cars, uh, but there's also a limited amount of parking for bikes, and that's often gets saturated. Um, so would it make more sense to actually have a bit more of like a deregulated parking Model so that anybody could park anything anywhere. So, like I said, not not sure that that's exactly the right answer. But I think you know allowing for some flexibility of how people use the parking spaces outside of their businesses, or uh, for that matter, making sure that when we're permitting new buildings, we're not mandating a certain number of parking spaces. In fact, there's no minimum parking number, or you know allowing again for that sort of flexibility of of what can be parked and where. I think could all make a big uh, difference uh, in terms of not having one car per one spot.
1: Yeah, that was one of the reasons I must say I was very excited about the MDS Um, (laughs) because I think in theory, right, the logical extension of being able to, so the MDS to just go back to it and you can probably do a better explanation than I can, but it's effectively a, hey, if you run any sort of shared system in a city and or you have to provide the data about where those trips are taken, anonymized of course, but like that there would be a way for cities to be able to understand like use patterns and things like that. I mean, the long-term solution, I think to to a lot of this is you just end up having to build a coordinated marketplace for space, uh, on our streets. And it's, and it's like, I think the logical extension for us when we talk about micromobility is that when you have the option of something that's one fifth, the size of a car, you want to start saying like, Yeah, look, I will absolutely pay my way, but I should only be paying for one fifth of the existing, you know, of the space or one tenth of that of one of those big ass trucks that everybody in drives in America, you know, like it shouldn't be that I'm paying the same amount for a vehicle in terms of road space in terms of parking space as somebody else who's really giant and that you start getting taxed accordingly, right? Yeah. And it also as well, you know, I think what we get, where we're going to get to certainly with the, with kind of smartphone enabled mobility services is that we will end up having like, Hey, this car park is free. If you park here, this is how much the cost is going to be. And that we'll be able to do things like surge pricing and and that sort of thing. Yeah. Um, Tech overlays.
0: Yeah. I mean, I think that would be ideal, but talk about an area for tech development, right? Like in terms of you know software that's available to do that and certainly again getting over you need like the right combination of regulation plus adoption in order for something like that to work. So I think there's in the micromobility space huge opportunities for investment and entrepreneurship in the software arena with regards to uh, like hyper uh, local location information and being able to do those payment transactions. Uh, quickly and across accounts that we haven't necessarily seen. And I guess I'm not exactly sure why.
1: Yeah, I um I don't know either. I, there was a company in New Zealand that was doing something similar to that called Parkable and they, they were originally doing marketplaces. It was like an Airbnb for car parks and cities, um, but they've ended up pivoting. They just couldn't build the marketplace dynamic enough they were competing against on the street car parking and things from council. So that was challenging, but um, they've ended up pivoting to like managing car parks internally for companies. So it's like, Oh, cool. Well you've got a big fleet of folks who are coming in in the morning. How do they make sure that they've got a car park when they arrive and that that, that, that can be allocated and then allows them to do for part charging car park, charging for car parks and things like that. But it is, you know, I do think that that tech enable parking question, I think is one that is very interesting and the the other side of that is of course like i i look at it and say people on e bikes shouldn't ever have to pay for parking i think that should be free and i think the council <laughs> should pay for all of that stuff and that should be absolutely like a well it should be a perk right like you're not paying for any of the road space or anywhere near as much of the road space and certainly not the road degradation that uh cars are you know cars and trucks cause so.
0: yeah and if you take transit it should be free and you should get paid
1: i agree i agree <laughs> somebody's the radical <laughs>
0: <laughs> I just said it to be provocative. No, no, uh, I'm going to get a lot of hate, except for uh, new Boston Mayor Michelle uh, no, Wood. No, yeah. no, no, no. I, you. <laughs> um,
1: I am curious. So, so, like, part of the reason I I think the other the other thesis that we have for micromobility and why we think it's potentially interesting, and I'd love your take on this too, is that you're and you're dealing with this in a lot of the the cities, as you say, the greenfield developments and a lot of the the new construction areas, is that. Around the world, it is very hard and very expensive to build large public transport projects. Like I, yeah. I think of my time in India or in Qatar, and it was like it cost a lot and you had to build it above ground because you can't do, you know, land acquisition anymore like you could in the past and the planning just isn't there, oftentimes the infrastructure, the infrastructure planning isn't there. How do you square that against where you think like large cities, especially these like very large cities are going to emerge in Africa, India, China, I think is probably a little bit more authoritarian in how it does its planning. But yeah, those are going to emerge and have to be functioning labor markets and allow people to move around and get to where they need to get to and all that sort of stuff. Like, how do you see that? those two things squaring, do you think that they're going to be able to do those large infrastructure projects or is that, is that micro-mobility's opportunity to go and eat up?
0: I think they will be able to do those large infrastructure projects. I think they should do those large infrastructure projects. And I think there should be more innovation around how we make those large infrastructure projects less expensive. The reason I say that is because public transport has so many benefits, right? Like even if it takes a long time to do in terms of accessibility, in terms of job creation, in terms of Economic development, quality of life. There are reasons to do public transport above and beyond the fact that it takes a long time. What I'd like not to see in places that are rapidly urbanizing is spending those billions or trillions of dollars, or you know whatever um, currency it ends up being, on highways and urban highways in particular. I mean, I think there's a a, a an argument to be made for the highways connecting rural areas to urban areas. I get that but I don't think there's an argument to be made for having an urban highway cut through the downtown of a city so that two suburbs can get to each other. And I think that's where we haven't quantified the harms or the costs in a way that's meaningful or in a way that really nudges, like pushes uh, policymakers and decision makers in a different direction. Cause to me, transport like public transit it's a no brainer, we should be doing that. We should be doing buses, we should be doing trains, we should be doing monorails, like we should be, you know, doing microtransit, just all of the slew of public transport options. We should also be spending the billions or trillions of whatever currency it is that we spend on highways right now on mobility. And I know we talked a little bit about government footing the bill for subsidies um, for mobility options. Like, you know, governments can pull funding from other buckets in, into that. Um, but I think equally, you know, you could also see these subsidies coming from large employers who, uh, are, you know, somewhat responsible for making sure their employees or their staff are able to get to places of employment, um, and have funding for that already, but could be, you know, doing some of the innovative things that you mentioned before, like, uh, leasing and subsidizing, uh, micro mobility
1: options for their employees. Uh oh, I'd love to see it. Yeah, totally. And it's been one of these amazing things to watch, which is I think a lot of a lot of times these things are happening, and it's just it's one of these like I don't think it's ever happening fast enough, you know. Yeah. One of the really interesting uh, pieces of uh, like nuggets that we got when we were, when I was spending time with Van Moof, uh, Taco, and in, in, in Amsterdam was he was saying, you know, in the US actually one of the biggest channels for us has been selling bike subscriptions for for their e-bikes into large companies. That has actually been where the biggest. Uh, uptake has been, which is also incredibly exciting. Like I think it's wonderful. And it's, it's a case of, I mean, my, my take is any sustainability officer, if they're worth their salt should be out there, like, you know, for a large company saying we need to build bike planes past the front headquarters of our, our of our, of our company, you know, that should be a prerequisite to you getting a sustainability job. But, um, yeah, that's the, again, back to chicken and the egg situation. Yeah, Yeah. Awesome. Hey, look, this has been such a phenomenal conversation. You are going to be uh, MCing a bunch of stuff at the Micromobility Conference. Can you just do a small plug? Anything that you're really, really excited about seeing coming into, into the conference?
0: Yeah, um, two things. I mean, I want to see all the vehicles. I told you, Oliver, like I'm on the hunt for my next E something. Yep. And so I'm really curious to see um, what, what's on offer and certainly what's coming to LA. Because I know there are several companies who are going to be launching in Los Angeles uh, relatively soon. But above and beyond that, I I mean, we didn't even touch on this in this interview, but on this podcast, but climate tech, like I think just, you know, (laughs) and and, and venture capital and funding that's available for climate tech, like we all have been, I'm sure, like reading the news or understanding that tech generally and funding and investments into tech uh, has been on the decline, except for climate tech and micromobility, in my mind, fits squarely in the climate tech definition. So I'm very excited to see which investors, especially because we're going to be in the Bay Area and Silicon Valley, show up um, and what they're thinking about, how they can uh, nurture this industry uh, beyond um, where it is right now.
1: Yeah, great question. And one that I'm i am actually, uh, I've got a couple of climate tech VCs lined up for for conversations on the podcast to answer this exact question. How can more you know this feels like it's the perfect company to get it and interestingly enough there's a couple of companies that we we will be covering so rad rad power bikes um managed to get the a big chunk of funding uh, in their la- latest round from right the TPG Rise fund which is a big climate tech fund and river uh, which is a e-moped manufacturer from India just got funded by cl- like Lower Carbon and Trucks and Maniv, and I think there is like it's starting to happen. But I just want to see that flood of capital come into the space um, for the really cool vehicles. Yeah. So it'll be exciting to see. Yeah,
0: yeah, yeah.
1: Wonderful. Hey.
0: Oh, I was going to say if I could make one more plug. Yes. I mean, you started this interview by saying I sort of like tangentially got into the micro mobility space, and part of the reason for that is because. I find that, you know, the micro mobility space is sort of like a different type of tech space um, meant to be, you know, more inclusive. There's a greater set of designs of the vehicles themselves, different types of business models. So I'm really excited that at the conference, the work that you all do is so focused on why are these options meaningful to people in the diverse ways that they present themselves? And how can we lower the barrier to entry, even just from an education perspective, figuring out what's one mobility option versus the other for new consumers. Cause I definitely found myself in that space where like, I honestly don't really care what level one versus level two versus level three means from an e-bike perspective. But if it means something different and how I use it, that's what I care about. Um, and so I think yeah. that's where the industry is going. That's what you all are, are pioneering. And that's like kind of where I fit in is uh, just figuring out how do we make these options more accessible to more people.
1: Oh, great question. <laughs> yes, that is absolutely the aim. No, no, I, I, I laugh because so one of the things that I, I've been spending a bit of time, uh, you know, and i all credit to the pe- folks who were super into electric scooters. There's a kind of very, very strong community of people who really love their electric scooters at the moment. But it feels a little bit to me right now, like the early days of computing, where people are like, you know, I've got <laughs> 70,000 megahertz, you know, and someone else is um, compa- comparing their RAM and someone, you know, people are just going to come along with scooters that are just, you know, they work. And they're great or they're mobility options and they're great and people just love them. And you feel it when you write it that you just go like, wow, this is materially different to anything else. And so I think, you know, the part that I, I want to play in the industry certainly uh, is being able to navigate us through the, you know, the folks who were really, really, you know, obviously hardcore early adopters and really into this and helped us get to this stage into the, how do we make it that your mom and my mum and, um, our friends who just don't think about micro at all are just like, well, of course I'd use micro mobility. Like it's just the most natural uh, way to get around and it's the best way to see a city and yeah, you know, that sort of thing. So thank you. And thank you for all your help with this as well, by the way, this is super, super fine getting to do this work with you. So yeah, for folks who do want to track you down, what do you want on, on Twitter?
0: At Julia Thane.
1: Perfect. That's Thane with a Y in the middle. And I'll link to all of this in the show notes. And um, yeah, and if folks want to reach out to you about the work that you're doing at the Rocky Mountain Institute, is, there a, is it best to just try and reach out to you on Twitter or, or is there another way to get get in touch with you?
0: Twitter, LinkedIn, uh, email to jthane at org. Would be happy to talk with anybody about any of these things. This is not just the work that I do for my day job. Uh, Like many people in this industry, it's the thing I think about all the time (laughs) and and perhaps too much. So, you know, we'll grab virtual coffee and and discuss.
1: Yeah, awesome. Great. All right, well, look, thank you so much. And again, really excited. Uh, Folks, if you do want to meet Julia, she will be at Micromobility America. One final plug. September 15th, 16th. Go and get your tickets. MicroMobility.io. All right. Hey, thank you so much, Julia. Really looking forward to having you on again at some point in the future too, as well to talk about the uh, very cool projects that you're working on. Thank
0: you. See you at Craneway.
1: Cheers.